A sinister infection is lurking that turns friend to foe, killing almost all in its path. It's not the latest Hollywood zombie movie, but rabies. I'm Dr. John Russell, and this is ReachMD Book Club. In this edition, we'll be discussing the book, Rabbit, a cultural history of the world's most diabolical virus from Viking Press. Two authors, married authors, Bill Wasik and Monica Murphy. Welcome to the show. Hi there. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Glad to be here. So what are your individual backgrounds? Well, so I um, am a magazine editor. I work at Wired Magazine. I'm a veterinarian, and I was in practice for several years, but now I work in public health. So, Monica, as a vet, had you seen much rabies? No. Fortunately, American veterinarians do not see much rabies these days. Uh, Thanks to the success of vaccine programs reaching back several decades, it's very unusual to see a case of rabies in a dog or a cat or a horse or a cow or other domestic animals. Most rabies infections in animals in North America occur in wildlife species. So really, as physicians, I would think our experience with rabies really is movies, you know, Cujo and To Kill a Mockingbird, Old Yeller. So I really think as physicians, we really don't have very much uh, experience with this. And, And you guys really tell a wonderful tale about this virus. Can you talk historically about the evolution of dogs? I think now dogs are members of our family and sleep in our beds and, you know, are like our surrogate children, but it wasn't always so, correct? It's sort of amazing. I mean, Monica can speak perhaps to some of the biology of it, but it really is amazing as you go back into the history, as we did for this book, to sort of see the way that attitudes towards the dog have changed over time. And then and attitudes towards rabies has sort of evolved as, as our sense of dogs have evolved. From the very earliest days of human civilization, dogs have already been domesticated. I mean, people believe that the dog actually sort of domesticated itself somehow, you know, attending to people during their, you know, daily activities and, 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 and essentially evolved up together. But you have this vision of the dog in ancient societies as this kind of urban scavenger, as a sort of um, a companion, but a companion that has a, a sort of a wild heart to it, you know, and potentially a savage heart to it. And that, that heart winds up being represented by, by rabies. Rabies sort of becomes almost a sort of living metaphor for the dark side of the of the dog. Um, and, and, you know, it, it isn't really until the 19th century with the rise of pet keeping um, that you start to see a, a kind of a different attitude towards dogs and, and the attitude towards rabies sort of changes along with that. Well-to-do people who, who kind of ran afoul of their own pets, correct? Sure, yeah. I mean, rabies presented a special conundrum for for sort of historical medical writers, right? Because not only is it the rare disease, I mean, really the only disease that you sort of visibly see pass between an animal and a human, but also there's this very, very long incubation period. So, you know, the dog bites you and then a lot of time elapses and then the human kind of if if they're if if the infection is successful sort of undergoes this this horrible transformation um and so you know even though not a lot of doctors made rabies a specialty because there was essentially no way to treat it reliably until pasteur's day you nevertheless find mentions of it essentially in, in almost all of the medical texts going way back to ancient times, you know, and it's 
very vivid description of the, the trademark symptoms of rabies. Um, you know, the, the main unique one being hydrophobia, which is a, you know, the revulsion to water or other fluids. But you have case reports going all the way back to ancient times that, you know, can be pretty scary. I thought it was very interesting in the book when you guys tried to tie some of the tales of vampires and werewolves, perhaps to rabies infections. You, could you expand a little on that? Sure. I mean, you know, if you think about our current vampire myth, our werewolf myth, our zombie myth, right? They're all saliva-borne infections, right? They're all um, this very strange sort of disease that uh, that turns humans into kind of biting animal-like creatures. Um, and really, rabies is the only natural analog for that kind of mythical transformation. Um, what's interesting in the history is the vampire myth and the werewolf myth, and even the zombie myth, don't really begin necessarily in a very rabid way. You know, the 17th century vampire tales, often vampirism isn't a contagious condition. You know, the vampire will come in the night and potentially smother you, and he might bite you, but but uh, more likely he might scratch at you. Um, you don't become a vampire. Um, but it's really in the 19th century that you see the vampire myth kind of take on the characteristics of what we now think of as a very rabid sort of infection. And if anything, they've sort of become even more so over over time. So can you talk about Pasteur's work? You know, he did so many amazing things that really still resonate today. Can you talk about his work in controlling uh, this virus? Well, Louis Pasteur uh, set out to make a vaccine against rabies after making vaccines against two important veterinary pathogens. It was the first time that modern attenuation methods in the laboratory had been applied to a human disease. So even though there was a vaccine out there for smallpox, it was a vaccine that, that uh, through Jenner and others, you know, a, a sort of natural phenomenon had been harnessed to protect people against disease. With Pasteur's vaccine innovations, a pathogen could be taken into the laboratory, manipulated, and come out in a weakened form that could be administered to naive people to protect them against disease. And Pasteur wanted to promote his methodology by making a human vaccine that would debut with a real splash, and he chose rabies because rabies, though uncommon in his day in people, as it is even more so today, he knew that rabies tended to capture headlines, capture the, the public imagination, and so a vaccine against rabies, an effective one, would be very popular and generate a lot of interest in his methods. So he set to work along with his laboratory colleagues on creating a rabies vaccine, which involved a lot of danger in the lab as he and his assistants would deal with live rabid animals harvesting drops of saliva with mouse pipettes and, uh, and actually um, first ramping up infectiveness of the virus through serial passage and then giving uh, small doses as vaccine prevention to first a series of laboratory animals and ultimately humans. You know, and I think if you talk to the average man or woman on the street, they're saying, oh, my God, rabies shots, they, they, they hurt so much and they're so horrible. And, and Pasteur's original shots were not how we necessarily administer them today, correct? That's true. Pasteur described his first patient as accepting the shots very gracefully and being hardly bothered by them at all. But uh, public perception of that long series of shots delivered into the abdomen was pretty horrifying 
The, the vaccines we received today, though, are no big deal. We get a series of four shots into the muscles of the upper arm that's usually accompanied uh, on the first visit by another treatment, an immunoglobulin treatment, which provides uh, some immediate protection against infection from the rabies virus. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ReachMD Book Club, and we're discussing a wonderful book, Rabid, A Cultural History of the World's Most Diabolical Virus, with its authors Bill Wasik and Monica Murphy. So has anyone survived rabies? Yes. Recently, that is to say just in the last several years, we have become aware of several survivors of rabies, and a few of these even have survived in in fairly good condition and, and gone on to live productive, happy lives. And it's it's a wonderful uh, piece of good news uh, f- about a disease that had, until uh, this century, been believed to be 100% deadly. And every case proven to have rabies in the past had, had died of rabies. And so it's great news that, that rabies can be survived. Now we need to figure out how we can make that happen. Can you talk about the Bali experience with rabies? Bali had, until 2008, been a rabies-free island. Uh, Rabies existed in other parts of Indonesia and even in neighboring islands, but Bali had never had rabies uh, in its dogs or wildlife or humans and so did not uh, vaccinate its pets routinely for rabies and, and did not stock hospitals with rabies prophylaxis for humans who may have been exposed. The airport was well guarded against the introduction of diseases like rabies, but Along its shores, Bali had lots of boats landing from other Indonesian islands, and, and these were not necessarily inspected for, for animals who might be harboring the disease. In 2008, a single dog harboring the rabies virus seems to have gotten off a boat on the shores of Bali, and over the subsequent weeks and months, that dog was able to infect other dogs on the island, all of them naive to rabies, and people started to become infected through animal bites. And before the Balinese government could mount an effective response, the the virus had spread rather widely on the island and caused a lot of suffering and death. So overall, can you tell what's the most common source of rabies in the United States today, animal-wise? Most people who die from rabies in the United States uh, which is not very many people, ultimately, fewer than five a year, usually, uh, die from a strain of rabies associated with bats. Bats are the most important vector for humans of, of the rabies virus in, in the United States. We have other wildlife vectors. We have raccoons in the east and foxes in the west, along with skunks. And uh, these definitely cause a lot of exposures and a lot of people to get follow-up prophylaxis. But bat rabies remains really important in uh, human infection because bat contact can seem pretty subtle um, and still result in a rabies infection. So, Bill, as a non-scientist, which of the rabies stories really kind of stands out for you of of kind of everything you researched on this? One thing that's really scary, and, and it's sort of unclear how many of these accounts are accurate, but are just some of the stories of of either people uh, waiting a long time to manifest the symptoms of rabies, you know, where often it can be a year or two years. I don't mean often, but I mean, you'll, you'll hear these, you'll see these stories in the literature, both historically and in the present day, where people will have an exposure and then 
it might be a year or more, and then suddenly they come down with this fatal disease. I mean, that's that to me is very terrifying. Um, you also have stories from the literature of um, people getting the disease from very strange sorts of exposures, like with a um, you know a a woman who sucked on a thread, you know, a seamstress who sucked on a thread that, you know, to, to put it through a needle and the thread had, had saliva from a rabid dog on it and she somehow got rabies. Uh, again, we don't necessarily know historically how accurate these are, um, but it does remind me of some present day situations where people have gotten rabies from organ transplants. Um, and, and there was one of these cases just recently uh, where, you know, the, they hadn't correctly diagnosed the cause of death as rabies. And so um, a number of people were exposed and, and one person died. Um, you know, so that's very scary to me. Um, and then the final category that, that I'll throw out there, and again, I, this is this is not necessarily the most common manifestation with rabies, but there are stories of hypersexuality in people with fatal cases of rabies where um, because rabies is acting on, you know, the limbic system with this sort of the seed of, of anger and 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 the, the passions, you know, that uh, there, there actually will be hypersexual manifestations with, you know, involuntary orgasms and, and that sort of thing. And it's a very, very, it, it, just, it just sort of helped to cement in my mind the notion of rabies as this very, very kind of Deep and ancient and primal and sort of uh, sort of disease. It, 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 it was really sort of creepy and and tragic and but but also sort of fun in a weird way to be engaged with it for for so long. You know what was it? What was it like? Husband and wife trying to work together to uh, to come up with one combination book. It was fun. It, it helps, you know, that we came we came at it from two very different backgrounds. You know. Um, Monica was sort of really engaged with the science, and so the chapters that were most in it with the science, like like the chapter on Pasteur and the chapter on um, Bali and also on the Milwaukee Protocol, um, she sort of took the lead on those, and I tended to take the lead on the ones that were a little bit more purely historical and cultural and that sort of thing. And so, you know, it was uh, because we had different priorities, I think we didn't have the, uh, you know, um, marital squabbles over the over the book that, that you know, some a lot of writers say, oh, my God, I could never <laughs> write a book with my significant other. But for us, it, it worked out great. Well, I'd like to thank you both for being on the show. Uh, the book is Rabid, A Cultural History of the World's Most Diabolical Virus from Viking Press by Bill Wasik and Monica Murphy. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you. This is Dr. John Russell. If you missed any or part of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com to download the podcast and learn more about this series. Thank you for listening.